Morning. If you want to open up your Bibles, we're going to go to Mark 12, 1 to 12, Parable of the Tenants. Mark 12, 1 to 12. I've got the ESV version here, so that's what I'll be reading from. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son, Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them, so they left him and went away. I'm going to pray quick as well. Father God, Lord, we are grateful for the chance to gather together this morning to open up your word and to study it, Father. We pray that uh, as we study it, that it may not be just another piece of literature that we might read, like a book or a newspaper article or something, but that it might be what it really is, your living word, that it might come in and that it might impact us, that it might uh, slowly help to change us more into your son, into Christ. We pray that we might learn from this and that we might take the things we learn and apply them in our everyday life, Lord. And and if there's anything that's uh, at the back of our minds today, anything that's kind of bothering us or... Um, maybe keeping us from being fully focused this morning. We pray that you might help us to put that at rest so that we can be fully focused this morning. We thank you so much and pray this all in your name. Amen. Thanks so much, Lord. All right. So the par- parable of the tenants actually comes up three times in Scripture. It's in Matthew 20, Mark 12, and Luke 20. And I just really like Mark's version personally, so that's why we're studying it. But really, no version is better than another. They all virtually tell the same story, just with some different nuances. But before we dive in and start picking Mark's apart, I'd like to first draw your attention to the context. Just like any other passage in Scripture, context is key to understanding what you're reading. And in all three Gospels, This parable is found right at the end of Jesus' ministry. Here in Mark's, Jesus is going to be given over to the Pharisees in about three days' time. This is actually the last parable Jesus gives before the cross. More importantly, though, it's also located right after Jesus is questioned about where he gets his authority from. This is uh, chapter 11, verses 27 to 33. The Pharisees, scribes, and elders are the ones who ask him. And Jesus replies by essentially saying, well, you know, I'll tell you if you can answer my question first. All right, answer my question, and then I'll tell you where my authority comes from. And Jesus' question was, 
Where did John the Baptist's baptism come from? Was it from heaven or from earth? Now, it's pretty obvious it was from heaven. I mean, when John baptized Jesus in Mark uh, 1, verses 10 to 11, it says that the heavens were torn open, the Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove, and a voice spoke to Jesus, saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. You can read all about it in Mark 1 if you want later. So, it's kind of hard to deny it was from heaven. But, you see, the problem for the Pharisees was that if they admitted it was from heaven, then that would make John a godly man. And if John was a godly man, or a prophet, then that would make his ministry and everything he said about Jesus would be true. Things like, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1, 29. I myself am not worthy to stoop down and untie his sandal strap. John 1, 27. He's the Lord. John 1, 23. Now the Pharisees, they couldn't have that. All right? They couldn't acknowledge John, and especially not Jesus, as connected to God. In fact, if you remember earlier in chapter 3, they say of Jesus, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. These guys were actually trying to connect Jesus to Satan rather than God, the exact polar opposite. So they couldn't say it was from heaven. But neither could they say the baptism was from man, because that would just make all the bystanders, all the people angry with them, because they all believed John was a prophet. So the Pharisees kind of find themselves between a rock and a hard place here. And they would wind up just saying they don't know in order to not look foolish or arouse any anger. But in doing that, they rejected John. And through the rejected rejection of John, they essentially reject Jesus too. So they reject not one, but two men from God, one being God's son. And so our parable picks up with that thought in mind, this, uh, this double rejection. So now we can dive in. And let's start by first identifying the initial characters we meet. We've got this man who planted the vineyard. Now, who is this guy? It's God. All right, I don't imagine anyone here would really disagree with me on that, but I'm going to drive that fact home just a little bit more by sharing with you a cross-reference. All right, this, uh, this vineyard imagery actually comes from a passage in Isaiah where God himself talks about that same vineyard. Isaiah 5, 1 to 2. And I wasn't going to get you guys to turn there, but I will because I'm thirsty. Isaiah 5, 1 to 2. Isaiah 5, 1 to 2. It says, My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. And if you skip down to verse 7, it says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plantings. So yes, the man who planted the vineyard is most definitely God, and then the vineyard itself is Israel. And if you want, you can try and attribute all sorts of things uh, to like the fence and the tower and stuff like that. Um, I mean, maybe the fence is God's protection and the tower is the temple, maybe. But honestly, I think that's all just conjecture. 
From my study, I think that the point of all those details concerning the vineyard is simply to say that this man gave the vineyard everything to make it productive and fully functioning. Nothing was lacking to make it a good, productive vineyard, so it ought to have produced good fruit. And then we see that this man, or God, leased the vineyard out to tenants. And who are the tenants referring to? The Pharisees and the scribes. They're who Jesus is talking to here, and they're the ones who are upset at the end. In the parable, they're the tenants looking after a vineyard, but in real life, they were the ones largely responsible for the spiritual well-being of the Israelites. And yes, we can see where all this is going. It's pretty easy, but at the beginning here, everything is still well. All right, the leasing agreement is done, and the owner goes off into another country for a while. No problem. But then some time passes, and the owner decides, hey, you know what? I want some of that fruit from my vineyard. Not a ridiculous request. He made the vineyard to be productive, should be bearing fruit. And then we have to look at this fruit also. What does the fruit symbolize? Well, fruit seems to be the preferred way of saying character traits in the New Testament. You got things like fruits of the Spirit. Your love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I think that's all of them. Uh, John the Baptist calls repentance a fruit. All right, the New Testament talks about a lot of different kinds of fruits, but they're almost always character traits. Right? And God wants our lives to be lived out in such a way so that we grow in and exemplify those traits, those fruits, if you will, all the time. That's what he wants. And I know that's nothing really new, but it's important because those fruits are super important to God. In fact, he expects them from us. Look at our parable here. It doesn't say in verse 2 that he sent his servant to see if the vineyard had produced any fruit. It says he sent him to get some fruit. It says there was the expectation for fruit. And that's not limited to the Pharisees or Israel, as Jesus is directing it here. Now that's the expectation for all believers. The end of Romans 7.4 says that we've died so that we may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. There's a purpose there. We belong to Jesus in order to bear fruit for God. So if you're a Christian, you ought to be bearing fruit and becoming more Christ-like. That's the goal. God doesn't care about you know, charisma, or your stature, your wealth, your appearance, your attendance, uh, your smarts, none of that stuff. Those aren't fruits. He cares about whether or not you bear real fruit. He didn't care about how pretty the vineyard looked, what the wood might be used for, if it makes shade, none of that kind of stuff. He only cared about the fruit. And so this begs the question, what happens if you don't bear any fruit? What if you don't become more Christ-like in your character? Well, in short, you can prepare yourself for a world of hurt. John the Baptist says in Luke 3.9 that even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. It's not a happy outcome. And so the plea is for us to be fruit-bearing Christians. That's it. Exemplify those character traits for God. And fruits are going to come up again as we mosey our way along through this parable. And we're going to see in vivid detail just how strongly God desires that fruit. But back to the parable. 
So the man sent his servant to collect some fruit. And what happens? The servant is taken by those tenants, gets beaten up, and kicked out of the vineyard with no fruit to bring back to his master. It's pretty harsh, pretty uh, despicable behavior. But the guy doesn't give up. He sends another servant, because he really wants that fruit. What happens to the second? He gets struck on the head and treated shamefully. So the man sends more. And who knows how many he sends? It doesn't specify. But we see in verse 5 that however many there were, they're all beaten up, and some are even killed. You know, it's ridiculously evil what these tenants are doing, but it's also ridiculously determined. It's ridiculous determination on the part of the owner. This guy is losing servants left, right, and center, and some are injured, some are dead, but he doesn't give up. He really, really wants that fruit, but the tenants just won't give him any. So now what's the, what's the man to do? The beginning of verse 6 says, he still had one other. One, meaning all the servants had been sent, and there was only one guy left to send. And who is it? His beloved son, God's son. Jesus was the last one to send to Israel the vineyard to seek out fruit. But if Jesus was the last one sent, then who were the other ones before him trying to get fruit as well? Well, the man's servants would be God's servants, a.k.a. the prophets. Guys like Jeremiah, who was beaten up by a priest and put in the stocks, Jeremiah 20. The, uh, the prophets killed by Jezebel in 1 Kings 18. And guys like John the Baptist, who was murdered because of one woman's hate. God's servants are the prophets, rejected by Israel and the Pharisees one after another. But we're entering a bit of a turning point now in the parable. See, up until now, it's been talking about the past and the present. It had been a summary of the Pharisees and God's interactions up until the present time, but Jesus doesn't end his parable here. He continues it on into the future. Though Jesus isn't actually dead yet, he says in verse 8 that the son, aka himself, was taken and killed and thrown out of the vineyard. And so we can begin to see now how this all kind of fits in that context. It's all about that repeated rejection. John and the prophets before him were rejected, and now the son's rejected too. It's a definite echo to uh, the previous passage here. But there was a special reason for the son's death, unlike the servants. Verse 7 says why. The tenants say to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So what's the inheritance? Well, from the parable, the only thing that looks to be inheritable would be the vineyard, Israel. The Pharisees, they want Israel all to themselves. They didn't want to lose their, their power and position in Israelite society because they lived lives full of privilege. Verses 38 and 39 uh, coming up, tell us all about it. They enjoy walking around in long robes, being greeted in the marketplace, getting the best seats in the synagogue and places of honor at feasts. And these guys, they had it made, and they weren't prepared to give it up for Jesus. John 12, 42 says, Many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. 
so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. And John 12, 19 has a group of Pharisees complaining to each other, saying, you see that you're gaining nothing, but look, the whole world is going after him. Right? These guys hadn't been leaders in Israel for years, and they had enjoyed their position all that time, and they were giving it up so quickly. But then look at what Jesus says will be the cost to their hard-hearted, continual rejection. Verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Matthew's version takes it a step further, saying that the owner will do that, but also let the vineyard out to other tenants who will give him fruit in their seasons. Matthew returns to the importance of fruit, and the Luke's has an entirely other flavor to it, but Mark focuses solely on that punishment for rejection. These Pharisees aren't going away with their aren't going to get away with their evil and unrepentant behavior. They will be punished. It'll cost them their lives. And then Jesus goes on, and he explains a little bit of what his own future will look like in verses 10 and 11, saying, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. It's a little bit confusing because he's adding on new imagery to a parable, which is already an image. But essentially what he's saying is, you know, you guys reject me and you're going to kill me as part of that. You see me as an enemy. But I am the center and core of everything. I'm going to be like the cornerstone of a building. Without me, the whole building would crumble and fall to the ground. And I'm here and I'm going to be that cornerstone because of God's marvelous work. Right? Jesus' death is not the end. He's going to become the core of everything despite the Pharisees killing him. You know, when I get together with uh, Dan and Bryce back at Pine Ridge to study a passage, one of the questions that we'll ask ourselves is, what surprises you about this passage? Well, what surprised me was the Pharisees' reaction. All right, Jesus told them that they've rejected all God's prophets all the way up to John. They haven't given him any of that fruit he desires, and now they're rejecting his son, who's worth even more respect. I mean, you know, they've already, they've already upset God to within a hair's breadth of utter destruction. And then Jesus tells them their future, if and when they kill him too. That it's going to push them past the point of no return, and they're going to be destroyed. And it's not that the Pharisees didn't understand what Jesus was saying. Verse 12 says, They perceived that he had told this parable against them. They understood that the tenants here represented themselves. But much to my surprise, the Pharisees didn't have a change of heart. Instead, we find in verse 12 that they're looking for a way to arrest Jesus, and the only thing that stopped him was the Jesus-loving crowd that the Pharisees didn't want to upset. They didn't have you know, a, a reckoning or a moment of clarity so they could see their sin. And to me, that's just mind-blowing. How could they still be so stubborn? How could they still want to harm Jesus? And how could they still be so unmoving? To be honest, it got me thinking about people in my own life. And I'm sure you have people in your lives like this as well. People who reject God over and over again like he doesn't exist. 
I don't need to really tell you this, but it is super frustrating. Because <laughs> we, like, we know he exists. And what's even more, he has a personal interest for each person on the planet. Yet people will suppress that simple truth. They'll reject him over and over again. And there will come a day when those people stand before God and that's it. They're going to be rejected back. Some will have had the gospel preached to them properly more than once. But they've just rejected it. It's sad, but even when all good reason and common sense and even like the spirit pressing on people's hearts, telling to them to accept, people will still reject it. But my question is, do we give up on people like that? Those unmoving people in our lives, are they a lost cause? I mean, you know, you read a parable like this and you might come to that conclusion. But don't, all right? Are these kind of people hopeless? No. No, they're not. Because they may still accept Jesus. They may still accept Christianity, God, before their time's up. The tenants in the parable had who knows how many different servants sent to them. And with every servant sent, there was real potential for the tenants to change their ways. So though someone may reject God when you introduce him to them, they may accept later on in life, maybe when someone else tries and introduces him, introduce them to him. All right, we don't know him. That's okay. Our job is just to spread the good news out there. It's not our job to try and force people to believe. So don't get hung up on someone not believing when you share the good news to them. There may be someone coming after you who may share again, and who knows what will happen. Maybe you're kind of like what uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Paul planted a seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So maybe you're just one person in that chain. Maybe you're the first person to preach the gospel, or maybe you're the person who's watering that seed for the third time. Who knows? But don't give up on anyone. God's got a lot more power to make that seed grow than we do. So as long as people are alive, they can still come to God. So keep hoping and praying for them that their rejection might turn to acceptance. But that's pretty much all I've got today. All right, minus a few lessons I made up to uh, some, of, some of the main points. Um, and there's only three today. But lesson number one. God wants and expects fruit from believers. A change and in growth into Christ-like character. And you can look at Romans 7, Mark 12, verse 2 for that. I'll just repeat it here. God wants and expects fruit from believers. A change and growth into Christ-like character. Romans 7, verse 4, and Mark 12, verse 2. All right, and that, like I said before, that's not anything new. And fruit takes on different forms. There's a lot of different kinds of fruits. Fruits of the Spirit, peace, joy, love, patience, kindness, repentance, um, gosh, nothing else is coming to mind right now. But there's a lot of different kinds of fruits. As long as it's just growth in your character to become more Christ-like. Right, lesson number two. Rejection of God, if left unchanged, leads to destruction. You cannot be in God's good books if you reject him. It just 
does not work. Everyone in this room, I believe, is a Christian. Everyone here has accepted it. But there is a whole world out there that does not know God. Maybe some people are ignorant. They just don't know. They think maybe all roads lead to Christ. All roads lead to heaven. But there are some people who flat out just reject God. They just say the whole idea, the whole notion of, um, be, of resurrection from the dead is just foolishness. There are people who do adamantly reject. But if they don't change their ways, it will lead to destruction. And lesson number three, no matter how hard-hearted people are, we do not consider people as beyond saving. And a great example of that is Paul. He was about the furthest away from God you can possibly get. He was actually killing Christians. And now we got eight or ten of his letters in our Bible here. He's one of the main pillars of the church now. So no matter how hard someone is, don't give up on them. They can still come to a, a knowledge of who God is, come to a saving relationship with him. Heavenly Father, but we're so grateful for the opportunity that we had this morning to get together as a group of believers to open up your word and to just study it, Father. We pray that as we learned uh, a little bit more about this parable, Lord, that um, things that we learned today, they might resonate with us, that we might uh, want to grow to be more Christ-like, that we may be um, re-encouraged, I guess, to go ahead and bear more fruit for you, to grow that fruit for you. We pray, Father, for patience as we go out into the world and see people who aren't in you yet. Pray for patience and wisdom as we speak to non-believers. Let our speech be seasoned with salt. And yeah, just help us to go out there and spread your gospel out to the world. We thank you so much. And in your name we pray all this. Amen.